This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. From Johannesburg, Professor Patrick Bond exposes the just transition and dirty deeds done. Two reports from COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, Daphne Weisham and Paul Beck with call-in. This is Radio EcoShock. If we don't help emerging economies avoid the fossil fuel trap, this civilization will crash over the climate cliff. At COP26 last year, a trial plan was agreed, but somehow the green has turned to black. To get the inside story, we go to Dr. Patrick Bond, professor of sociology at the University of Johannesburg in South Africa. Patrick Bond, welcome back to Radio EcoShock. Hey, thanks very much for having me, Alex. You recently returned from the country of Mauritius. What took you there? Well, there's an amazing progressive movement that works on environment, and uh, it's called Resistance Ec Alternative. And they're extremely good at uh, pulling people from the region, defenders of the Indian Ocean. And this island has had gone through some tough times. I mean, they haven't been hit with the awful cyclones that neighboring Madagascar has. Uh, they had uh, three in about a week or so this year, as well as a drought. But they've had uh, shipwrecks in 2021 that... Uh, that actually dumped oil all over. And this group, Resistance Ec Alternative, became famous for finding artisanal boom strategies to keep the oil away. They basically wrapped up the uh, sugarcane husks uh, as well as uh, human hair, and they put several kilometers of these booms to prevent the oil slick from spreading into the very sensitive coral reef areas. And I think one of the most extraordinary things is that they they come from a socialist perspective in doing this. It's a very strong tradition of revolutionary socialism, and they've turned to the environment. So if anyone is interested, John Bellamy Foster from Monthly Review is also uh, out and about in Mauritius. And this is the kind of uh, network that I think unites the sort of forces of progressive broad organizing with uh, our region's environmentalists and the political ecology school was a real treat for me. I learned much more than I could even uh, begin to contribute in my talks. Yes, but on the other end of the spectrum, the parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change met again in Africa, this time in a resort at Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. Patrick, is that a good place to discuss climate justice? Well, it's pretty typical, isn't it? I mean, we're, we're going to see them again in the region uh, Middle East next year at the United Arab Emirates, Dubai. And this is now becoming a bit of a joke. It's so, so much so that uh, Greta Thunberg, the Swedish youth activist decided she wouldn't even bother legitimizing them by showing up. Uh, there are plenty of uh, good climate activists there, no question, but they're not allowed to do anything. They have small tokenistic uh, demonstrations, but their ability to lobby is limited. And indeed, the fossil fuel companies have shown up uh, in force, so over 670 delegates. And the major breakthrough, I think, if there is going to be one, is the loss and damage demand. And here in South Africa, we've had extraordinary uh, rain bombs, uh, two uh, that hit Durban, the first one on April 11, killing about 500 people. And uh, the way things are organized, uh, there were very few who were middle class and they were, they were entirely uh, black residents of Durban because the shacks and the 
low-income housing, the areas where uh, people are, are living near the floodplains and on the hills are very vulnerable. And um, so this was one of the ways that the race class aspects of post-apartheid South Africa, even uh, in some ways worse than the apartheid era in terms of poverty, inequality, unemployment and ecological de degradation really hit home. So loss and damage is very important, uh, partly because very few of the people who were uh, injured or, or uh, certainly the families of those who lost their loved ones have been compensated and instead a major uh, car company, Toyota, has been the main beneficiary of the sort of building back to, for example, to put in some stormwater drainage at long last. So this is a kind of good reflection that we hear in South Africa, including with the minister, Barbara Creasy is her name, uh, in charge of the United Nations subcommittee within the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change dealing with loss and damage. And she's uh, not well liked here because she has done very, very little to, you know, sort of help on environmental justice and stop pollution that, that kills a couple of thousand people a year in some of the main pollution hotspots. So in, in short, we're not too uh, optimistic given that sort of leadership and that the United States and it's, uh, you know, the middle tier allies that you spoke of in the intro, the, the sort of, I would call them the sub-imperial layer. And that uh, begins with China, the big uh, polluter, which, uh, you know, per person is way, way less than the United States and historically is uh, far less than the United States. But both of them came out this week to decline to uh, fund uh, loss and damage on grounds that that could open up uh, liability. And so we may see some small amount go to a loss and damage fund, even from some US contributions. But the critical thing that they seem to really want to avoid, and they wrote into the Paris Climate Agreement, is that there's no liability. There's no, let's call it the polluter pays principle. This the kind of principle, Alex, that has been so widely accepted in your environmental protection agency. That's the basis of the uh, super fund that was set up in the late 70s under Jimmy Carter to to try to get to grips with the huge toxic dumps all over and to charge the, the companies that polluted. And that simple logic, which is both ethically and economically efficient, uh, it's ethically necessary because uh, the people who's who've caused the problems, people in the global north, I include myself uh, in a middle-class suburb of Johannesburg, we are just simply not being compelled to pay, and hence the problem continues. Yes, with the climate disaster gaining on us, the Global North must find a way to help with clean renewable energy. So a group of wealthier countries decided on South Africa as a pilot project for a just energy transition partnership. I don't know a lot about it, but Patrick, let's be generous. What was the stated goal and hope of this project? Yes, I mean, I think we could be generous at least to say what, what should be the basis for the North paying even a middle-income country, South Africa, uh, the amount $8.5 billion. Uh, and we would have hoped it would have been a grant, not uh, further loans in South Africa's foreign debt already at about $175 billion. Really, we, we shouldn't be compelled to borrow, especially because the currency is declining rapidly. And if we borrow in a US dollar, they, the, the lenders don't take our South African rand seriously. We have to convert to dollars. And as our rand declines, the effective interest rate uh, becomes ludicrously high. So uh, this is one of the major, you know, let's say it's technical detail, but it's one that really affects the price. We also wanted genuine uh, concessional finance, very, very low uh, interest rates. The U.S., of course, being greedy uh, and with the neoliberal agenda of, of both Joe Biden and his climate czar, John Kerry, they're only giving the market rate loans to South Africa, about 9% a year. 
And then they're providing guarantees to private lenders from the U.S. who will contribute. So what's this money supposed to be for? If we could be generous, we would say it would be the way that a northern country would pay a southern country to leave fossil fuels underground. And that's the way it was phrased even by the South Africans in the uh, annual uh, nationally determined contributions that they're proposing. These countries say, this is what we'll do. And uh, South Africa's huge coal reserves and 85% reliance for the electricity in the laptop, for example, for example, that I'm talking to you through, um, that would require us to really make uh, rapid changes to to decarbonize, to, to basically close those coal-fired power plants down early and leave the coal in the hole. We also have gas offshore and we should not be uh, taking the gas. So in a generous interpretation, the 8.5 billion should be done as a grant in exchange for leaving our fossil fuels underground. We should do it all over. You know, the, the, the sort of original idea for this was from Ecuador. It was a place called Yasuni on the Peruvian border in the Amazon, where there was about $10 billion worth of oil in the demand from uh, a then progressive government of Rafael Correa in the uh, 2006, 2007, when it got up and running, was that the West would give three and a half billion, and that would be in grants to the Ecuadorian government, which would use it for social programs. So that's a good way to think about the North paying a down payment, really, a small amount, really, compared to what's owed on the climate debt, and the South saying, okay, so we won't use the atmospheric space that is, you know, really fairly ours to use, but instead of uh, extracting fossil fuels or engaging in a highly fossil dependent development path, we'll take some money and we'll use that to have a different way to uh, empower our people. Unfortunately, the 8.5 billion is going to uh, ESCOM mostly, as well as some electric vehicle subsidies to BMW, VW, Mercedes, a few other car companies. Unfortunately, these are companies your listeners may know that cheated on their emissions. And California actually picked up the cheating in the VW scandal in 2015. And it was a, you know, real, a really serious scandal. It cost VW 18 billion euros in fines, but they're the ones getting these subsidies and they're going to export the electric vehicles. There's some talk of green hydrogen. Uh, that'll go through a, a really awful company called Sassalt, one of, well, the second worst polluter. But really, let's talk about what you would do if you wanted to pay this electricity company, it's called ESCOM, not to engage in more fossil fuel extraction and not to have, not simply coal, but also methane gas plants, which are proposed. Well, unfortunately, the, the guys that are dealing, and it, let me name a name, uh, in the United States, a famous negotiator called Jonathan Pershing from the U.S. State Department, very close uh, ally of, of a man called Todd Stern, who Hillary Clinton and then John Kerry depended upon for basically managing the U.S. role in the in the U.N. And they were notorious for refusing to acknowledge climate debt and really refusing to do what was right uh, to cut emissions and adopt any of the climate justice principles. And unfortunately, Jonathan Pershing was put in charge of this. And uh, just before Glasgow, over a year ago, he came to South Africa and uh, organized this $8.5 billion with his mates. And they were from Britain. Uh, and then they were hosting Glasgow uh, COP26 and also Germany and France and the EU as a whole. So these five, let's say, governments, EU including, but also separate from France and Germany with a World Bank component. Um, and they are uh, very self-interested, all of them, in having ESCOM get more money. And the reason is they've all lent to ESCOM for coal-fired power plants. And the most notorious, Madupi and Kasile, that's the majority of the debt that this company owes, 
they really shouldn't have been lent any money. Uh, these these lenders shouldn't have, especially for a coal-fired power plant. But it was known as they were lending that the company, ESCOM, the parastatal uh, state agency, was already corrupted by a company from Japan, Hitachi. And the reason we can say this openly, that Hitachi bribed our ruling party, the African National Congress, is because the United States has a Foreign Corrupt Practices Act that was actually in 2015 deployed and uh, Hitachi was prosecuted and successfully it was paid pay, paid a fine, a small fine, about 19 million. Unfortunately, the fine was paid to the US, not to our, our people, our taxpayers or our government here in South Africa. And this is a real indication that the lenders really shouldn't be collecting. They should take the proverbial haircut on the loan and uh, we should call that loan an odious debt and repudiate it. And unfortunately, the 8.5 billion is a money, it's what we call fungible. It goes into the ESCOM treasury and it goes out in the form of loan repayments, as well as the uh, ambition of, of the ESCOM leader, whose um, name is uh, Andre de Reiter, And he wants to have 44% of the new money coming in to be used for um, gas plants. And the, the gas would emanate from Cabo Delgado, Mozambique. It's famous uh, around the world now because um, it's where Islamic guerrillas uh, with some strong support in parts of the population are trying to fight against the um, extraction. Uh, they're guerrillas who don't necessarily have a of an environmental ideology, but they certainly see that the resource curse of Mozambique, which is right there, the Ravuma Basin, one of the biggest gas fields in the world, has led Total from Paris, Total Energies, as well as ExxonMobil from Houston, and Eni from Rome, and China National Petroleum Corporation, to set up a massive facility for Total, they put in $20 billion, single biggest investment in Africa. And that means if they can go forward with this gas um, extraction, they'll create a, a much more climate you know, change through methane, which is 85 times more potent than CO2. And the point being, just to wrap this huge contradiction up, is that this area, the east side of Mozambique and the Mozambique Channel, gets very hot and the water goes above 30 uh, degrees centigrade. And that means, oh, I can't remember what that is in Fahrenheit, but close to 90. And that means that the cyclones get very serious. So one that hit in 2019, Alex, it's called Cyclone Kenneth, had 225 kilometer per hour winds, the, the, the fastest uh, ever recorded uh, in, in this part of the world. And uh, the one just a month before that cyclone a day, uh, killed a couple of thousand people and went all the way from Mozambique up into Zimbabwe and Malawi. So we're talking about a really serious uh, problem of the climate catastrophe hitting this very area and this terrible irony that the French and Italian and, and US and Chinese companies are there. And they, by the way, need uh, protection. They need a local gendarme, local police, and the Mozambique army is useless. And so they've met Emmanuel Macron, the French leader, actually visited both Kigali in uh, Rwanda to see Paul Kagame and Cyril Ramaphosa, our president in South Africa. Uh, that was in May 2021 after a big battle closed down Total. And as a result, we've put a thousand of our troops, more than a thousand Rwandans into unfortunately not uh, succeed much in, uh, you know, resolving this dispute and not protecting the local people. The guerrillas are getting stronger. Uh, the army isn't doing very much. Uh, Total isn't confident enough to move back, but they are through Eni, the Italians, beginning to extract offshore, selling it through BP. And that means we are actually losing this uh, battle on all the fronts involved. And it does mean that if you go to a place like Sharm el-Sheikh in, in Egypt, you see the Total Energies leader is a guy called Patrick Pouyanet, uh wandering around with a smug confidence that they can just continue business as usual.
check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. We are talking with Patrick Bond from the University of Johannesburg. It seems like Africa is now seen as a big target for more fossil fuel production. The companies that are making, the multinational companies that are making trillions of dollars of profits right now want to come in and start fracking, start more oil reserves. It's going to make Africa finally rich as it always deserved as their story. But it starts out green and it ends up black, just as I said in the introduction. Do you think that that we are insane or are we going to commit suicide this way, Patrick? I wouldn't call it suicide because it's a lot of Africans have no responsibility. It's more murder, isn't it, by these guys like Patrick Pouyanné. I've studied him and I have a piece uh, in the current issue of Actuel Marx, a uh, French journal. And um, Total Energies is particularly notorious, not just Mozambique. And also um, they have a pipeline, the East African crude oil pipeline, IACOP, along with the Chinese to uh, to dig deep into Uganda. The, the Lake Albert area and, and pump out through Tanzania. And so that's a huge battle that uh, is being waged around the world uh, with solidarity against uh, IACOP. And Total then is also very active down our coastline. And we're fighting very hard, both Total and Shell and their local ally, uh, impact, as well as Petro SA, the local South African company, they are really being defeated by activists, activists on the beaches, literally hundreds of protests uh, over the past year, and uh, tens of thousands of people involved from the fisher folk and the community, uh, the shoreline sort of uh, affected communities, but also the marine conservations, very sophisticated networks uh, opposed to the seismic blasting, as well as the climate activists. And, and they come in both climate action and climate justice ideologies. And I've been very impressed. And, and I go to these beach line protests and to the ones here in Johannesburg in solidarity. And it's in the courts that are extremely good uh, you know, public interest lawyers have actually defeated these big oil companies. However, that means there's more pressure on these oil companies to go dig elsewhere, like next door in Namibia, they found some big gas fields. And as you say, all over the continent, uh, there's more exploration. And the tragic aspect is partly that Vladimir Putin's uh, invasion of Ukraine meant that uh, sanctions, oil and gas and even coal sanctions from Europe makes the European leaders like Olaf Scholz, German Chancellor, actually physically visit Africa uh, with his charming, smarmy, you know, approach and, and actually look in Senegal uh, and uh, for gas in Nigeria for oil and here in South Africa for coal. His visit in uh, May this year was just appalling, just as he was about to host the G7. And um, of course, he has a very prominent role in the in the $3.5 billion uh, just energy transition. So enormous hypocrisy where the Europeans are saying, no, no, we should uh, decarbonize, we'll give you some money to, but then they're encouraging more fossil fuel exports to their own uh, coal-fired power plants, which have just been opened up. Look, I hope they can survive this winter, and it's going to be a very, very important uh, period for them to very rapidly uh, move into more renewables and better storage systems. And so maybe in the medium and long term, we can look at this as a blessing in disguise. But what we see in Africa is more stranded assets and co-opted African leaders who've been in Sharm el-Sheikh uh, basically uh, lobbying to have Africa excused to get a little bit more oil and gas, which, yeah, as you observe, the profits go to the elites and to the uh, uh, Western uh, and Chinese oil companies, and they uh, they leave the Africans with pollution and underdevelopment and oppression. 
Would you believe, Patrick, that we hear about absolutely none of this in the Western media? You know, what you've just told me is all news. So what can we do to try and bridge this gap before we wreck yet another continent with fossil fuels? Well, I'd love the progressives listening here to begin to think about the climate debt and what sort of solidarity. So let me give you one example. It's not a U.S. example. The U.S. has been exceptionally good with anti-apartheid solidarity during the 70s and 80s. That's when I was studying in in Baltimore and Philadelphia. I learned my politics very much through that movement and African-Americans leading us fighting racism and also an anti-corporate boycott divestment sanction strategy. So the solidarity is in our veins. We know what uh, can be done from uh, Western countries where good people fight their own elites. And and I think that would be the the spirit, wouldn't it? In Germany, for example, they're recognizing that the genocide of the Namibians, the Herero and the the Nama people by the German colonialists uh, uh, just over 100 years ago require reparations. And so Germans began by saying, we will give a basic income grant through the Lutheran church, as well as one of the the big unions, IG Metall, the metal workers. And what they did was quite remarkable. They, They said to as a pilot, uh, just let's take a village. And the village, like many uh, in rural areas, is mainly populated by women. The men have done their migration to look for jobs. And so they would give everybody, it was only about $10 a month, but it did an enormous amount of good in this place, Ochevero. To me, it was a pilot, Alex, for how the West can indeed start solidaristic work so that you uh, and people like me in the global north here in Johannesburg should start figuring out how a system of climate debt would pay people in in especially uh, massively storm and you know sort of extreme weather affected areas uh, drought areas flooded areas areas where there's rising seawaters uh, so that we would start making perhaps that same sort of basic income grant of, of cash donation where people would otherwise not really survive without it and i think those are the kinds of creative ways forward these germans in the lutheran church in ochevera namibia with very good local activists uh, promoting them from uh, vintook it's it's a basic income grant that can be found on the on the web and also i would say uh, the other way to again provide that solidarity like yasuni in uh, ecuador is to try to find areas where conservation can be confirmed by local progressives again with some monetary compensation to people it's really about how to pay a climate debt isn't it and it's not only as i say the 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 sort of loss and damage we've been describing like durban it's also adaptation it's costing a lot to build the stormwater drainage uh, the better uh, irrigation systems for rural people and so forth and then also to compensate uh, africans for not using the uh, atmospheric space those are the sorts of messages i hope and you know the most important thing of all get your governments to force companies to stop emitting uh, people are recognizing how to do that it's uh, the contradictions that joe biden's uh, politics with charles schumer and and uh, joe manchin coming up with their side deals you have to watch those guys every moment and i know there are fantastic climate justice folk uh, all over the united states uh, doing just that and it was heartening to know that mansion actually lost at the end of september and trying to, to to cut a deal to open up more federal lands for oil and gas so more power to all of you who are engaged in those battles 
I think there's just such hypocrisy because there is a reticence among even some Greens in the West to say, yes, we'll pay climate reparations because we know it will go to corrupt African governments. But the corruption is coming right from the World Bank. It's coming right from the multinational corporations. And the products that have to be bought always come back to be purchased from the West. And the extra interest and and collapsing currencies always benefit the West. It's very difficult to say how we're going to get around this reparations thing and get the money in the ways that you just described directly to the people who need it with better drainage ditches, with better shelters, with cooling centers, with all the things people are going to need just to survive this climate change. Well, that's right, Alex. And the challenge you're putting to us in Africa is to to come up with ways around uh, corrupt uh, governments. And certainly there are, and and they're uh, often corrupted by multinationals. Uh, just as one reflection, the, the first action of the provincial governor, right, the equivalent of a, of a U.S. state governor named Sikhle um, Zekalala in Durban was to arrange that the water tanker that was going out to the communities would actually route first his own personal house, his mansion. And so that was, he was very embarrassed when that came out. The neighbors nailed him. It was it was useful to have that reflection of, of how venal and greedy some of these leaders are. And I think it's at that level where activists in this part of the world, certainly in Zimbabwe, when the um, uh, cyclone Idei hit, and they didn't want the government, the sort of uh, coup government against Robert Mugabe, a guy called Emerson Mnangagwa and his finance minister, Ntuli Ngube, and they activists in the Center for Natural Resource Governance said, actually, don't pay the climate debt, don't pay emergency funds to these characters. Here, here's a whole bunch of civil society forces that really could use it. I think giving people who are desperately hard hit, uh, and there are, of course, systems to do that with with relative you know, accuracy and, and very small admin fees, basic income grants through, you know, People get funding on the phones these days, and you can easily identify where they're coming from and if they're residents. And we need to set these up. Uh, we also need the emergency systems. We have a very good group that goes all over the world based in, in Durban called Gift of the Givers, a Muslim group. And they, they're perfectly adequate uh, in receiving funds for emergencies, and they do a better job than any any government I've ever seen. And I think it's that uh, let's say quality control that the activists uh, on at least the South African and Southern African side are beginning to say, yeah, well, maybe the states we're dealing with, if we give them uh, big funds, they'll actually use it to buy guns and put us down even faster. I think those are good questions. We have to be able to come up with an answer like a basic income grant that would uh, make sure that ordinary people uh, who are terribly affected by these extreme events actually are compensated. Well, I want to get in a quick plug here for a friend of mine who's a volunteer with the American Red Cross, and she's traveling to the different hurricane zones and and uh, the, the wildfires and finding people burned out and helping them. And they're really short of volunteers, so they're not asking for money. They're asking for people who have the time to show up and help them. And I'll put a lot more about that in my blog. You've been at this a long time, Patrick Bond. How do you look forward? How do you see your own role now? Well, I'm a, an armchair academic, I always have been, but it's very easy for someone in the middle class to find an extra moment to encourage, to do analysis, to do critical work against uh, the corporates in the state because there are uh, next generations coming through. So although we still have our, you know, the classic South African left divisions, there's plenty of little, uh, you know, factions and we have about three or four different climate justice movements. What's really great, and I even saw this on Amy Goodman's show uh, this week where she highlighted one young uh, South African, uh, and it's to me just a terrific, let's say, boost to my own energy and hope 
that next generations are coming through with exceptional militancy. And I think, I think also a very healthy uh, generational rage. And they're also picking up an issue that when we work on gender and race and LGBTQI and, and class and all the other uh, ways in which uh, climate is very biased, we're also now being confronted with something that's so profound. It really is the definition of sustainable development, which is future generations. That is, are we screwing up our environment so much now? Uh, with, for example, extractive industries, the mining sector that's so powerful here, that we're leaving the, the next generations with huge deficits. And that's definitely the case. And I salute the youth who get angry at our uh, my generation. I'm 61. And uh, it's time for us to, to look in the mirror and say, well, yeah, future generations are going to be part of our whole set of, uh, of uh, affected constituencies that need a voice. And we should be listening very carefully to the youth who try to begin to articulate that. We have been speaking with Professor Patrick Bond from the University of Johannesburg, and I will put a link to his work and his recent co-authored article, How Not to Offer Climate Finance, as published at counterpunch.org. You can find these links and a way to pass on this interview in my weekly show blog at ecoshock.org. Patrick, thank you for coming back here for our listeners. Well, it's great to be with you. And just two words to end, Alex. The, the two words are, uh, are uh, local vernacular in different languages here. Uh, they mean power to the people. Mandla, away to. Thank you so much. I'm Alex Smith for Radio EcoShock. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock with your host, Alex Smith. From Sharm el-Sheikh, Alex talks with Daphne Weisham, longtime host of Earthbeat Radio, now campaigning against the super-warming gas methane. Daphne, you are CEO at methaneaction.org at the COP27 Climate Summit. Have you heard new science or news about the super-global warming gas methane? Well, yes, we have. You know, at COP26 in Glasgow, methane was the topic on day one. Um, it's kind of been buried here at COP27. There's a, a much greater focus here on loss and damage and on getting the U.S. and other developed countries to pony up the money for loss and damage for countries like Pakistan that have been, you know, a third of the country was underwater recently due to heavy rains and flooding. But here in Sharm el-Sheikh, NGOs and scientists are calling on the delegates to specify binding targets and timelines for cutting methane emissions. And also, we are leading the charge in pushing for the development of methane removal technologies. As your listeners may know, there's very little in the way of transparency around actual methane emissions. In fact, the U.S. and many other countries are misreporting and underestimating their methane emissions by a long shot. So we need accurate measurement, reporting, and verification. And until we have that, we have no way of knowing if countries are actually taking action or just talking a good game. Now, we do have the Global Methane Pledge and over 100, and I think at last count, it's over 140 countries have taken on this pledge, which is a voluntary pledge to cut their methane emissions by 30% below 2020 levels by 2030. But today, we and a number of other 
NGOs are calling for a mandatory global methane agreement that would set binding targets for cutting methane emissions and lowering atmospheric methane levels. So, you know, we keep hearing that we need to keep 1.5 alive, 1.5 degrees Celsius, the target agreed to in Paris. And we know that a half a degree of the warming that we are half a degree of of Celsius that we are now experiencing is attributable to methane. So it's a no-brainer that we should be pushing very hard on cutting methane and getting it out of the atmosphere if we want to keep Paris alive. But um, there's been an awful lot of pushback on even keeping that 1.5 C target alive by some of the bigger emitters. Now, you hosted syndicated radio for years, Daphne, reporting out the environment on Earthbeat. You campaigned for Greenpeace before that. Is there an environment movement showing up at this COP? Absolutely. I mean, I wouldn't say it's 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 not just an environmental movement. It's a climate justice movement. And I've been going to the COPs since uh, Kyoto. And I would say that this is the most diverse COP I've been to in terms of the, the communities that are actually leading the charge within Climate Action Network and other global networks of NGOs. So it's heartening to see their engagement. In the cross-section of people that you meet at Sharm el-Sheikh, how would you characterize the mood on a scale of from we're doomed to it's not so bad, humans can fix this? I haven't done a poll, but I would say that I feel uh, about 70% hope and 30% despair. You know, I think a lot of people are very concerned that there's an awful lot of brinkmanship going on here, um, as it always is in the final days of the COP. If we can keep not only 1.5 alive, but move on some of the commitments that were made in Glasgow to get all of the public financing from uh, institutions like the World Bank out of fossil fuels and talk about a phase down in fossil fuels, not a phase out. That's a big distinction that India in particular wants to make is that we don't need a phase out. We need we need a phase down uh, because they want to continue consuming fossil fuels until way past 2050. So we do need to keep the pressure on in these last few days, and that's what we're trying to do. And you mentioned the floods in Pakistan. Have current events added more urgency to the formal science and policy discussions? It's perplexing that Florida's been underwater Pakistan's been underwater. We have one scary event after another that's clearly linked to climate change happening all over the world. This COP has as a backdrop the high price of oil and the war between Russia and Ukraine. So a lot of people are concerned about how they can better access uh, gas, for example, in the EU, um, which is too bad. On the other hand, you're seeing countries like the Ukraine pledging to not only meet but exceed their nationally determined contributions and move away from fossil fuels, which is very heartening. Is there anything else you would like to pass on to our listeners? One of the things that that I'm most hopeful about is the work that we are doing at Methane Action. And we have gotten the endorsement of James Hansen, former director of NASA's Goddard 
Institute for Space Studies. He's supported our call for not only aggressive reductions in methane emissions, but funding uh, for research and development of methane removal technologies and also a an agreement that would be binding on methane emissions. We have a civil society uh, sign-on statement that has been released to every member of the 1,500-plus Climate Action Network endorsing the work we're doing. It's been endorsed by Oxfam International, Union of Concerned Scientists, Friends Committee on National Legislation, you name it. You know, folks from all over, from Africa, from Latin America have signed on, and I I'm hoping that some of your listeners can go to our website and endorse that civil society sign-on statement and reflect on what's possible with the combination of aggressive cuts in methane emissions and methane removal. Our scientists tell us that we can, in fact, reduce warming by 0.6 degrees Celsius by mid-century with these two actions, methane mitigation and methane removal. I know a lot of our listeners are worried about methane. So where do they go to get more information about what you're doing? Yes, it's methaneaction.org. One word, methaneaction.org. You can also follow us on, follow me on Twitter, Daphne Weisham. Um, We also have a methane action Twitter feed, and um, I try to keep that updated with regular posts every day. From Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, we've been speaking with longtime environmental activist and radio host Daphne Weisham. Thank you, Daphne. Thank you so much, Alex. Covering the world, this is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. From the COP27 Climate Conference in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, Paul Beck with reports in. Paul is a Canadian climate scientist and the largest single science video provider on YouTube. Hello, Paul. Hi, Alex. So over 35,000 people talking climate in a weird holiday venue. It must be strange. How is it going, Paul? For me, it's going all right. It's place Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt, so it's in the the south coast of the uh, Sinai Peninsula. The actual place reminds me a a bit of uh, Las Vegas. I just finished attending some presentations in, in a section called the Cryosphere Pavilion, which was sort of my you know, main hangout at the COPs as in previous years because there's all kinds of good talks on the cryosphere. So glaciers on in, on Greenland and on, on Antarctica, the sea ice at both poles and the Himalayan glaciers and, and so on. So lots of really good sessions. And I just came from a session with uh, Jason Brock, who's the scientist probably most well-known for, for his work on Greenland. And one presenter was Dr. Jem Bendel, and Jem is a well-known sustainability expert. He was hired by governments and presented keynotes at major conferences. Then after a deep dive into climate science, he became critical of academics who were putting a bright face on coming disaster. At this COP, Bendel released new stats showing the denialist hashtag pound climate scam went from 3,000 tweets a month uh, most of the time to almost 100,000 monthly posts just in time for the climate conference. But tags like, well, you know, pound climate justice lags far behind. What does Bendel is thinking is going on with this sudden surge of the climate scam thing again? 
yeah, that was a very interesting slide that he showed uh, where he, he just did that assessment on that hashtag. And, you know, the only thing I can think of is if you look uh, also at some previous cops, I mean, there, there seemed to be a surge on the nonsense uh, tweets and nonsense social media posts, you know, about a month or two before before the cop is about to start. So I, th- I think it's just the right-wing climate denier sphere, you know, sort of gearing up before major climate events. I think that's, that's part of it. You know, along with the Climate Emergency Forum panels, which we had on a variety of topics, and today there were a couple particularly interesting ones on uh, with the Center for Climate Repair at Cambridge, a group of scientists there that are working on what well, today's topic was ocean CDR, so methods in the ocean where you can remove carbon dioxide. The sessions are a mix of what's happening with the climate, what's happening with human response to the climate, you know, and different groups that are trying to do something about it, and also what sort of things can we do for on, on the sort of climate restoration front. You know, and I, I think that climate restoration will become bigger and bigger, but I mean, the focus on at this COP is loss and damage, you know, the, the inequitability between the global north who have created the vast bulk of the emissions and the global south who are bearing the brunt of some of the worst consequences of rapidly uh, changing climate, mostly floods and droughts in other places and, uh, you know, rising sea levels will affect many countries there. After his presentation, you had a sit-down with Jem Bendel. What did you talk about, and how would you characterize his mood? So I basically asked him to kind of elaborate a bit on, he's known as probably the most famous paper was on deep adaptation, the idea that we need to change our way of life to address the climate problem, like at just adapting to things. Is you're being hit by things from all different directions, and you're just trying to dodge them for mitigation, and you're just trying to figure out how to be resilient when they hit you for adaptation. But it has to go much beyond that. We have to really change how we do things in society to uh, change the results, which is to try to come back from the brink of abrupt climate system change. So, so it was very a lot of details in that. We talked about a lot, you know, a bit about uh, academia and the. The insular ivy tower nature where, you know, academics by nature are more and more specialized. And, you know, as you get more and more specialized, you know more and more about less and less. So, you know, and these aren't practical ways of of dealing with, with climate system change. You need to understand how all the pieces are changing and have policies to step back from it. So I also had a half hour session where I chatted with uh, Peter Fyakowski and about his book, Climate Restoration, which was just published this year. So I'm guessing you did not shake hands with Al Gore or celebrities or, or Joe Biden or anything? Well, I did manage to do so with uh, Al Gore, actually, and it was just kind of random. I was walking around in one of the buildings where there's each country has a different booth, and I happened to notice a schedule saying that, you know, Al Gore is going to be speaking at 6 o'clock. <laughs> and then I talked to him afterwards briefly. When it, he, he is totally against any idea of, geo, of geoengineering, as he called it, totally against it. I said, well, what about climate restoration? Does that, 
would you be against climate restoration? And, you know, by that time, there were swarms of people also asking questions, so I never never got an answer to that. But, yeah, you, you do see people, I mean, and you see them at unusual times. Like last night, I was in an event. There was a uh, free uh, dinner and presentation at a, I think, a four-star hotel. I was talking to a Polish reporter from Warsaw, and he was with a group. You know, and he said, that's the mayor of Warsaw right there beside me. <laughs> and uh, I thought that was quite interesting, the mayor of Warsaw. And then a few minutes later, they all started to look very concerned and upset and started talking in Polish. And I didn't know what was going on. So a little while later, I asked the reporter, well, what's happened? And he said, oh, he said some missiles have just gone into Poland. You know, and, and when they first hit, they thought it was Russian missiles. Some of the Polish uh, people were clearly physically very, very upset. So we talked a little bit about the cop that was in Poland not too long ago, two years ago, in Katowice, Poland, and, you know, about the influence that coal companies had on that conference. And people have probably read that, you know, there's more lobbyists here. There's a record number of fossil fuel lobbyists here, and actually the Canadian contingent, Canada has a civilian and uh, where they'd be giving a number of talks. And Alberta people had a session, which I recorded. Um, so I've got, I've got loads of, I've got like dozens, literally dozens of visit videos that I have to put up on my website. I find that the cops, there's so much packed into them that um, there's just no way I can keep, if, if I'm post-uploading videos, then I, I won't be taking more videos. You know what I mean? There's always something going on here. And the internet actually is being very flaky for me and extremely slow. And I did some speed tests with, uh, you know, next to Jem, in fact. We were standing next to each other. My internet was terrible. His was fine. So I did speed tests, and my speed was, was almost nothing. Now, I, so, you know, you start getting a bit paranoid. You start wondering, well, Jem said, well, there's probably a list of, like, 100 activists, you know, that they just throttle their internet slower. <laughs> so, you know, they do uh, selective growing of their internet just to frustrate people so that they can't post things, climate activists. So uh, I don't know if that's the case, but I do know there was a COP27 app, the official app from the UN on the conference, and that allowed the uh, Egyptian government to know to actually access your phone and your camera so they could hear what you were saying. They could, uh, the camera, uh, they could see what was going on. And also they knew your location just from that COP27 app. And there were some articles on that before the conference. So I didn't download the app. But when you come into Egypt, you go to the phone company, Vodafone. And if you're with the cop, they give you a free uh, Vodafone SIM card. You know, that has all that tracking capability on it, like the cop app. So they don't get you one way, they get you the other way. But, I mean, I've got nothing to hide, so it doesn't really bother me. Well, let's make a fond hello to the government of Egypt, and please keep working on your own climate policies. Lots we could say about that. Have you seen any major climate pronouncements so far that you think could actually work? The funny thing is the conference is so large. I have been around the entire thing. Like I've seen the plenary rooms and I've seen the uh, you know main areas. And often, you know, when the world leaders are in there discussing, then they're, they're not open to the public. Like it's very 
you know, there's very different levels of uh, hierarchy in, in, in what you can get into and what you can't get into. I read the uh, summary in The Guardian each each evening and on what's happened at the COP. <laughs> and, you know, some of the things I know about, and but many of the things to do with the negotiations, et cetera, you know, that's how I find out about them. It's not, uh, you know, just <laughs> unless you're in the meeting room, then, uh, you know, you just don't know. You have you know, I find out a lot of, about a lot of really good events from, say, Nick Breeze, for example, who, I mean, he interviewed uh, Catherine uh, Hayhoe just yesterday, and I got to meet her, you know, the, the evangelical climate scientist. Like, she's Canadian, but she's quite well-known as a climate educator. It's a huge circus in, in a way. Like, it's, it's nowhere near the, the most efficient way to, to get action done on, on climate. I mean, let me turn around and ask you. I mean, have, have you come across much news on the COP in your uh, neck of the woods in Vancouver? Very, very little. It's it's not being covered on the television news at all. Although I have to say that I'm not seeking it out as much since I'm a little bit pessimistic about what's really going to come out of this. Uh, you may be in the richest part of it, Paul, in the sense it may feel like voices in the wilderness, but actually you're meeting some of the people who... Do matter. I think Nick Breeze is one of them with Climate Gen. Climate Gen is just Climate G E N N, and he just did another really good interview with Jason Box, the glaciologist that I talked to on Radio EcoShock, and that gets us back to glaciology, which I know is is one of your loves. And I think this is going to be key to the future of the world. People think it's extreme hurricanes and droughts and floods and heat, and it is all that, but sea level rise is going to rewrite the maps of our world and uh, sink some of the most populous cities and coasts and all that. You've heard all that. So why do you think glaciology is coming to the fore now? You know, we're finding out more and more that the um, major ice sheets on Greenland and Antarctica are nowhere near as, as solid as we thought. For example, on the sea level curves for the different scenarios of warming, from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change reports, right, they have a sort of a, a, a band of, of curves rising upward sort of exponentially, but they're all still fairly low sea level rise by, say, 2100. And then they had a dashed line going up. Now, there was just a conference on a, a, a cryosphere conference in Iceland in August, and there were something like two or 300 scientists there, glaciologists and sea ice experts and people, and, you know, one of the big presentations that they were all talking about was this curve of sea level where the dashed line curve that was in there had something like one meter of sea level by 2070, and it went up to a couple meters by uh, 2100, sort of in an exponential fashion. Now, years ago, I said, um, back of the envelope calculation, is it possible for us to have, say, seven meters of sea level rise by 2070? And like that was that's considered absurd, and it still is. But here's a curve that was presented at the conference in, in Iceland where it was one meter by 2070. So they're getting closer to uh, what I think would be the reality, you know, Scientists don't tend to believe things unless there's a paper on it or multiple papers on it. I mean, another example is the warming rate of the Arctic relative to the global average, because it's always been in two times, two and a half times, 
right? So all of the media articles, all of the scientists would say it's warming twice as fast, and yet you show them a curve that shows, hey, the warming is at least four times as fast, and because it's not published yet in a paper, they all parrot the number double, and now finally, just a few months ago, a paper came out, and it's, it clearly shows it's four times faster temperature rise in the Arctic, so then you start hearing that a little bit in the media and stuff. I mean, it, even scientists, it takes a long time, because they're so specialized, they, they just take the word of other scientists, right, how, how the whole thing is built up, so... So, so it takes some time to, to actually readjust to data which shows things are much worse than, than they think. And that, that's true in just about uh, all aspects of climate science. As you know, everything's happening faster than expected. Well, the expectations are completely um, wrong. <laughs> you know, they're always on the conservative side. So. But I think the biggest effect coming at humanity in, in the short to midterm is the extreme weather events are going to greatly accelerate. I mean, the idea of 1.5 degrees is, is absurd, and yet there's still people, you know, negotiators and stuff that are talking about this number, but at least now they're conceding, well, we'll probably pass, we probably can't hold the 1.5, but then they start talking about, well, we'll pass 1.5 for a short period of time, sort of, and then back it off. Well, tell me how that's going to happen. <laughs> Right, right now, you know, it's just not. I mean, the two degrees is probably gone too. So then you start have to start thinking about three or four degrees, and you know, there's not going to be a lot of ice on Antarctica and Greenland. But how long will it take for that ice to be lost? Well, the mechanisms. One of the reasons why the sea level rise dashed line was a meter by 2070 and two meters plus by 2100 is because of these different marine ice sheet instabilities, you know, one of them being water's heavier than ice. So water on the surface of the ice finds its way to the bottom of the ice, you know, it creates crevices, it creates cracks, it opens up moulins, it's, you know, warmer than the ice, so it's melting through like a drill. But we've known about that for a while, but it turns out that that can greatly accelerate the movement of the ice sheets towards the ocean. And we know that the removal and, and collapse of ice shells are creating greatly increased rates of glacier flow because it's like removing a cork from a bottle. We know that the intermediate water of the ocean is warming very, very large amounts, and it's very salty and warm, so it's, it's not at the surface because it's denser than the surface water, which is colder and fresh. But that intermediate water is undercutting the, the glaciers, um, and there were some papers you know, on East Antarctica, where, where that was being measured, also on Thwaites Glacier, where they called the, the Doomsday Glacier. So all of these things are happening. Uh, it's changes in the AMOC, the, event, the ocean circulation. There's more recognition in the scientific community that, hey, you know, really bad things can happen very quickly. And they really uh, wouldn't acknowledge that possibility uh, before. But now it's being talked about, at least, and scientists are starting to say, well, how do we have a formulation sort of for what can actually happen, you know, if these worst-case scenarios happen. And these are really sort of, they call them the, the fat tails, if you like, of the exponential distribution curve. But what I really think is going to happen is we're going to get simultaneous failure of the major food-producing regions of the world, you know, so in a, in, in a decade, or, you know, five years, a decade, decade and a half. And uh, this is going to cause uh, global food sh shortages, spikes in prices, 
there's going to have to be a huge amount of money flowing from rich countries to poorer countries or we're going to get mass starvation events in, in these poorer countries. I don't think we can avoid that sort of scenario. We saw it once a little bit in 2010 when the Russian wheat crop failed and that caused wheat prices to go up around the world and then geopolitical unrest. So there's lots to talk about there. So as we finish up our time here, do you have any gossip or inspiration or interesting stories that you would like to pass on, Paul Beckwith? I, I, I like Peter Fayakowski's view. So he, he's an engineer. He was a, a chip engineer, not, not the potato chips, but you know, Silicon Valley developed companies that had imaging systems to uh, image chips as they were computer chips as they were being uh, manufactured and, and processed, etc., and, you know, his products, the company's products were needed by many of the, of the big producers. So, so that sort of set him up. And then, he, you know, he's had other business ventures. But, but he, he, he started being concerned about climate and he found my videos and he found uh, people like you and your show. And he found, uh, you know, the guy McPherson's and he started investigating as an engineer would for himself. And he was very concerned about what, what he saw. So, you know, he's really switched his focus to, you know, what can we do about the climate issue? And so we talk about his book mostly in the half-hour interview, and I'm really um, assessing, you know, what his views are, and I've had some information from the Cambridge Climate Repair people. We had uh, Sir David King was supposed to come and be on one of their panels, but he couldn't, so we had an eight-minute video that he made for the, for the panel about, you know, the climate restoration sort of ideas. I mean, Peter's view is for a solution to be viable, it's got to be, one, it's got to be scalable, two, it's got to be permanent, and three, it's got to be self-financing. So there's, it's got to generate some money. So there's four sort of solution areas he looks at. I mean, he really likes the idea of uh, carbon capture in cement and carbon capture to make limestone because there's a market for limestone and cement. You obviously, you know, huge demand in the world, you know, huge amounts of mining going on. And if we don't need to dig up the materials and we can mass produce them, but with uh, carbon that we capture from the air, and then that's, you know, it fits the requirements, those three requirements that I said. And the idea of growing massive amounts of kelp in the ocean, not just on coastlines, but in, in surface, you know, deep ocean areas with obviously you need platforms, uh, things like that. From COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, we have been speaking with Canadian climate scientist Paul Beckwith. You can track Paul's latest videos on his YouTube channel or his website, paulbeckwith.net. And I'll put links in my show blog, of course, at ecoshock.org. Paul, it's great to talk with you, and please keep your head above the crowd and come back to us safe. Okay, well, thank you. It's always a pleasure uh, chatting with you, Alex. This is Radio Ecoshock. I'm your host, Alex Smith. Get all our previous programs at our website, ecoshock.org. <laughs> <laughs>